When we think about peace, peace conjures up all sorts of pictures in people's minds. Um, things ranging from various symbols like doves and um, the peace sign was very popular back in the 60s. Great people. People, um, and we even have prizes we give out for peace prizes. Um, you know, the picture of the peaceful scene and the water is coming down in the waterfall and that sort of just quiet noise that you get in the bush. All sorts of different ideas of what relates to peace. And of course the obvious um, one of, you know, the end of conflict, the end of war, etc. You know, harmony among the people. So all sorts of things. But then you've got to ask the question, if so many people are putting so much effort into it, well, why don't we have peace? Why is it still elusive? All right. What are we missing? And I want to talk about the biblical picture of peace. What does it mean to be the biblical picture of peace? Is it about just not war? Is that what it's about? the absence of war, or is there something else to it? Let's start off with in um, John chapter 14, verse 25 to 27. And this is Jesus, if you remember, this is Jesus' discussion before he's heading off to the cross with the disciples. And he says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your resemblance, um, to remembrance all the things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives um, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it um, be afraid. You have, heard me, you have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you have loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And in, in this discussion where he's encouraging the disciples, he has this line in there where he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, but not as the world gives. And so this peace that he's talking about is different um, from the way that the world sees peace. And for those who are interested in the Greek, I've got the, the definition for the word there on the, on the right. And it has quite a wide range of meaning. Um, for, and it means basically absence of war right the way through um, to things like tranquility. But I want to have a look at some of the passages where it talks about this. One of the things that um, Jesus also speaks about in that same block, if you like, Uh, is in John 15, verses 18 to 20. And he says this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word I have said to you, a master is not greater, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours, or keep yours also. And so, one of the things, the obvious things in this, because it's in the same block, is he's not talking about an absence of conflict. Right? There will be conflict. Just by the fact that we are Christians, we are followers of Christ, 
doesn't mean that therefore we, we're going to get it all plain sailing and therefore it'll all be hunky-dory. In Romans 12, though, in verses 14 to 18, he says this, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so there is, at the same time, this call that as much as it depends on us, we need to be trying to live peaceably. All right, so it isn't a, an excuse, therefore, to, um, well, we're going to have conflict, so let's just go for it. No, the idea is that we are to be pursuing peace um, as we live our lives here on this earth. So then, what is this peace? What is it that we're supposed to be uh, pursuing? I want to start way back at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. And you think about, you've just gone through in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the creation. Uh, and there's the sort of culmination at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may eat fr- freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the eye, you get this picture of here is mankind in the garden with this relationship with God. All right? To the point where in chapter 3 it talks about God walking in the garden um, and then coming to seek them out. And so that's all that the lovely picture up to that point. But then it all went wrong. Because in Genesis 3, and picking it up in verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die because he's asked her about this fruit of the tree and she's um, said, no, even if we eat it, we'll die. Even if we touch it, we will die. Um, Satan and the serpent says to the woman, you shall not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that um, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So here was this picture of peace and tranquility in the garden and then sin entered the world. And if if you remember, uh, what follows from that is they're expelled from the garden. And the gardeners had there with the the angel with a flaming sword um, to stop them basically coming back. And so then sin then became that problem. And that barrier between uh, man and God. But go forward a um, a couple of thousand, a couple of millennium. When Jesus arrived on the earth, and this is picking up in the story in Luke chapter 2. Then the angel said to them, um, they're appearing to, uh, and my brain's just gone blank, I think this is the shepherds. Uh, and then the angel said to them, do not be afraid or 
For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, um, which will be to all people. And there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was um, with the, the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And so this is one of the announcements of Jesus' birth. And notice what it ends with. First of all, it tells them um, that Jesus is born and where to go to look for him. But in this chorus at the end has this idea of peace, goodwill towards men. So even Jesus' birth is announced with this picture of peace um, by this um, heavenly host. In Matthew chapter 5, 6 to 9, Jesus is um, doing the Sermon on the Mount and I've just picked up a couple of verses from that. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so again, this idea of peacemaker, uh, and for um, again for the Greek people, but the idea of someone who restores peace between people, all right? It's the one who works for peace. And notice that these are the people who are called sons of God. In Second Peter chapter two, and this is sort of getting back now to um, what we started in Genesis. Uh, with the garden and the fall. And this is a nice sort of summary statement uh, in Second Peter chapter 2, and starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into change of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world... Um, of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would have lived ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who according to the flesh in the lusts of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous and self-willed. So what you have this picture here of is judgment and salvation. For the unrighteous... It's judgment, it's punishment. And he gives the examples there of the flood, where only eight were saved. Sodom and Gomorrah, where the cities were wiped out. And this idea of God knows who's righteous, who's not. He reserves the righteous for salvation, but the others, it's punishment. And you have the same idea in Matthew. Uh, where, and this is at the end of Matthew 25. 
Picking it up in verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then just skipping down a little bit to verse 42. But he will also say to those on the left, And depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. So again, we've got this picture of the people in the final judgment, and they're divided. And he uses the metaphor of the sheep and the goats. And so on the one hand you've got the sheep and they're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom. And on the other side you've got the goats and they're the ones reserved for the everlasting fire. And you don't see many fire and brimstone sermons these days but it's still there. And notice it wasn't prepared for humanity. It was prepared for the devil and his fallen angels. That's who it was targeted at, not necessarily humanity. However, for those who don't turn to God, that's what awaits you. But there's hope. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, we also well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. One of the things that um, motivated Paul in his preaching of the gospel was this idea of knowing the terror of of the Lord, knowing what it's like to fall into the wrath of God. And that motivated him not to go, oh well, woe's me, that's it, I'm just going to get out of here and enjoy it while I can, but rather to get in there and to preach the gospel. Why? Because it's God's rescue plan. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And you think about what it was talking about in the previous one. If I'm judged according to what I've done, 
Woe's me. But God didn't just leave it there and go, oh, well, that's the, the destination and off you go. He sent his son to die on that cross to become the payment for that sin. And the thing that then separated us from God, that sin, can then be dealt with. And notice he described us as enemies of God in this passage. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us so that we might have that option to escape that punishment. So Christ dealt with that sin, right? In spite of what we were, in spite of the fact that we weren't good, that we weren't perfect, that we were sinners. But now we've been justified. We've been saved from that wrath. We've been reconciled to God. That relationship that was broken by sin has now been bridged. We have that promise of eternal life and rejoicing. And so, think about back where we started. Jesus' arrival on earth was peace and goodwill to all men. We've now got peace. Why? Because we have now got that restored relationship. Remember what the definition of peacemaker was? One who restores that relationship? So Jesus became the ultimate peacemaker for us so that we can have not only that restored relationship, but we have been saved from the outcome of our sin, so that we no longer have to face the wrath of God. That peace that comes from knowing that we now have that relationship with God. And knowing as well, as Jesus talks about um, when we passage is taken from the Lazarus when Jesus has just arrived and Martha goes in to see him on the, and he's on the way in um, and he talks about the idea of the resurrection uh, and Jesus in verse 23 says to her, your brother will rise again and Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And do you believe this? And that's that promise that we have. All right? Even though we may die physically in this world, we have that promise of eternal life. Death for us is not the end. And more so in picking it up again in Romans 8 verses 1 to 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of Spirit of Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what law could I not do that it was weak through the flesh, God did through sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we have this promise. There is no condemnation as long as we're walking according to the Spirit. And notice in there it says um, that to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Right? We have that, all of that taken away. So there's no condemnation. There's no, um, we don't have to worry about the outcome of the judgment. Why? Because Jesus has done that. Right? For us walking according to the Spirit. And in Romans 8, similar sort of idea. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For we are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For we do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So not only do we have peace and life, but we are called sons of God. We have that relationship now back with God, that we are now his sons. We will receive the adoption as sons um, with God. And the other thing that happened as part of this as well, um, this is individually for people dealing with sin, but bigger picture as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, And again, just before we read this, think back to your history. Israel and the rest was the big picture from way back from um, sort of Adam's time, not Adam's time, Abraham's time, um, to where the the kingdom was, uh, not yeah, the kingdom of Israel was established. Nation of Israel was established. Kingdom was a bit later um, when Moses led them out of the Promised Land. But it was Israel and everyone else. And he picks that up in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh, that you were called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time that they were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross." thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So now there's no more us and them, or actually it was them and us, uh, because we were on the outside. It's all one. We are all part now of that one family of God. And notice again, peace is mentioned a number of times of that, that this was a message of peace, that Jesus brought peace by removing all of these distinctions, right? And by restoring our relationship 
with God. And as we said, no longer subject to his wrath, condemnation, etc. But wait, there's more. Sorry, I had to. Just had to. Matthew 6. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Let your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you not, uh, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more um, clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for today, uh, for the day, is its own trouble. And so this idea of anxiety, worry, are things in the past. We shouldn't have to, we should not be worrying about what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to drink? Why? God takes care of all of that. Right? We don't need to worry about the essential things in life. That's God. He says, I will take care of that as long as we're living the way He wants. And He says, don't worry about that stuff. Rather, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things that cause us to worry and stress, God will deal with them all. Alright? Don't need to worry. And again in Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 to 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Not just food and drink and clothing, anything. We should not be anxious. We should be taking it to God. And then God's that right, we will have peace then if we do that, rather than the turmoil um, that worry. Um, and it's picking up on something Isaac said um, in his communion that that idea of that recognition when you've done something wrong and all that turmoil that goes on inside you. Right, put it away. Take it to God. Right, God's dealt with it. For this reason I bow my knee to the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven is named, um, in heaven and earth is named, that you would grant you according to the rich of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being uh, rooted and grounded in love might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus 
to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And just this idea that we're being constantly strengthened, right? And just to comprehend the enormity of the love, right? And him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can imagine, right? Sometimes we limit God by the fact that here's our little box that we've got in our mind and God's way bigger than that. Um, So don't limit God. We have a powerful God who's promising all of these things and he is able to do them. And then just in conclusion, just um, I want to leave you with this. Not only do we have peace because of um, our relationship with God, but also we have the message of peace. Uh, and look at the way um, Paul Peter describes this in Acts chapter 10. So this is uh, where he's gone off to meet Cornelius um, just before uh, the Holy Spirit baptises them. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that we would know um, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we were witnesses of all these things that he did in the lands of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they killed by hanging on a tree, whom God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, um, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who ordained by the God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. We have the message of peace. We have that gospel. We've got peace from that gospel. All right? You think about what Jesus said to his disciples just before he's about to be taken away for crucifixion. These things I have spoken to you, um, that in me you will have peace in the world. Uh, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So, just concluding then, Jesus brings peace from God. And we are uh, his children and we are receivers of that peace. And it's not just And the big one is the salvation, the sin and the dealing with that. But it's everything else. God, We have a God who cares for us. And we don't need to be concerned about the things of this world. It doesn't mean that we won't have um, plain sailing all the way because the world rejected Jesus. But for us, we have that message of peace, that reconciliation with God. Therefore... I leave you with the words that Paul said was his motivation. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So let's send out that message of peace.